there weren't a lot of people of color walking up and down Cedar Springs in the late 80s. And you weren't always welcome. The arts was that haven and safe space for me. It wasn't even in my own community because I was still shunned because I was a black gay man. In 2017, I had it all, but it was a world built on a secret that I didn't want to deal with and could no longer contain. And that's when it all came crashing down. You can't stay in the closet when the floor gives way. This is Falling Out. Welcome to this episode of Falling Out. I am your host, Brian Kennedy. Joining me across the aisle is my fabulous co-host, Coleman Charles. Coleman? Hola, hola. So it is gala season here in Dallas. We're very excited. Is it gala or gala? I don't know. It's my favorite type of season. <laughs> it is a good season. <laughs> Hopefully fall is around the corner and we're starting to get some cooler temperatures here. But we do know it is time to get snazzy, time to dress up a little bit, get out to these charity events and just have a time. I'm excited about this episode because we've teased this charity event for quite some time throughout our show. But today we are here with Terry Loftus, who is the senior co-chair of Black Tie Dinner. You know, I didn't know a lot about Black Tie kind of before this podcast. I've definitely heard about it, you know, kind of know what it's about. And so I'm really excited to hear more about this event from someone that knows a lot about it. And we will get to a lot of that. But with our guest, Terry has so much creativity and is involved in so many things in Dallas that we have got a lot of ground to cover today. So let's jump right in. Terry Loftus is the Donna Wellman Family President and Executive Director of TACA, which is the Arts Community Alliance. TACA's mission is to support excellence and impact the arts in North Texas through grant making, capacity building, and thought leadership. Under his leadership, TACA launched the TACA Resilience Initiative to reframe vital support for the Dallas Cultural Arts Organizations during the COVID-19 pandemic. TACA has distributed $2.1 million since March of 2020 to nearly 100 cultural arts organizations in Dallas County. He is the Tony-nominated Broadway producer of Bandstand on Broadway in 2017, which received the Tony for Best Choreography and Orchestration. He received his first Tony nomination in 2015 for The Visit, starring the legendary Cheetah Rivera. Prior to Taka, Loftus was vice president of the Broadway Strategic Return Fund in New York. He was responsible for investor development for BSRF throughout the United States. BSRF was a co-producer of the hit musical Town, which received the Best Musical Tony in 2019. Loftus spent the bulk of his career in marketing and advertising, beginning with a subsidiary of Leo Burnett in Chicago TFA Communications and later operated his own agency for 14 years, Verve Communications Group. He served as president of the Dallas-based Eisenberg and Associates until his departure from advertising in 2018. Loftus is a Dallas native and a graduate of Booker T. Washington High School for the Visual and Performing Arts. He has been actively engaged in the Dallas arts and nonprofit community for many years and serves on the board of directors of the Dallas Symphony Orchestra, Black Tie Dinner as senior co-chair, Dallas Arts District, and Texans for the Arts. Additionally, Loftus serves on the President's Council of the Advisory Board of Booker T. Washington School for the Visual and Performing Arts and is a member of the Dallas Assembly. His former board service includes Resource Center, Resource Center Foundation, The Dallas Way, The Friends of the Katy Trail, USA Film Festival, and Titus. Loftus grew up in Oak Cliff near the Dallas Zoo and currently resides in the Winnetka Heights neighborhood of Oak Cliff. When in time permits, Loftus returns to his passion as a jazz singer for private events and occasionally the Balcony Club in Lakewood and Alexander's. Please welcome to our show, Terry Loftus. Terry, thank you so much for being on our Thanks show today. Thanks for having me. We want to start off a little bit talking about you. I know we've got you're involved in some really big organizations here in Dallas, and we want to talk about that. But I want to get to know the man, Terry. Uh, growing up, you know, where do you come from? What was your experience like, even with coming out and some of the challenges you may have faced? I grew up in Dallas. I'm a Dallas boy. Grew up in Oak Cliff, the section of Oak Cliff that's in and around the Dallas Zoo. We called it Trinity Heights back in the day. I'm sure they've rebranded it now because everything is changing. My mom was a homemaker and a tailor by profession. She still is, even though she doesn't do very much of that anymore. Growing up, my dad was on the line at Procter & Gamble making Crisco and Ivory Soap. And then 
had a, a long career with Procter & Gamble, then went into seminary and became a minister. They divorced in the late 70s, and so I, along with my sister, kind of started to work to help support my mom because we opted to stay with my, my mom as opposed to going with my dad. So yeah, I was the little nerd in school. I went to grade school and, and uh, middle school were predominantly, I won't say predominantly uh, African-American, but the transition, the section of Oak Cliff we grew up in was used to be an all-Jewish neighborhood. So when we moved in, and I think it was 1969 or 1970, we were one of two black families that lived in the neighborhood. And the night that we moved in, literally 48 hours later, you saw for sale signs up and down the sidewalk. As a kid, that was a bit jarring to say, you know, mom, you know, ask your parents, what happened? We we moved in and everyone wants to leave. So there was, we were part of the white flight from that section of Oak Cliff. But great childhood until my folks divorced. But I was the I was the nerdy of the of the three of us. My sister's the oldest. I'm the middle. My brother's the youngest. I was the the odd duck, so to speak. So I didn't sound or talk like my classmates. I definitely didn't dress like them. I, you know, I was the one who played, I played trumpet, I played French horn. My grades were pretty good. So I was bullied at a young age, physically and verbally. That perpetuated even more so when I got to middle school. I was chased down numerous times where, you know, teachers and, and school administrators had to, to intervene on my behalf. Then high school was at what was then the Arts Magnet, which is at Booker T. Washington, studied music. Uh, trumpet, French horn, jazz vocals, and it saved my life. When my dad left the household, things got really tough for us because all of the income, this was a time and a period in our society where women couldn't even have a checking account without their husband's approval and signatures and all of this, so let alone credit on their own. So it was tough. My mom, mom went from being a homemaker to working three jobs to support us. How, how old were you when your dad divorced? I was probably 11 or 12 when they divorced. It was, it, it's hard to think about those times now because they were so screwy because we went from basically a, a, a nice average middle income family when dad was there to, there were times there was no food when we were in our home. Mom was not in a position to keep the mortgage and all the utilities. So she paid the mortgage, the utilities got turned off. We lived in one room in our house. If we didn't have the house, we would have been in a car somewhere or on the street. It, it was at, at that level. So to go from there to where I am now, this journey has been one of not only being this young black gay kid growing up, then going through those types of, of, of challenges and then coming out eventually into a society to where even when I came out and started going out, you could count the number of people who looked like me up and down Cedar Springs on one hand. You didn't get past like four. So it was a lot. So without the support of a very committed mom and my siblings and grandparents, the trajectory could have been easily different than the person I am today. And then we'll we'll talk about this later, but the arts played a big part of that. So when you talk about the bullying, I mean, obviously I think all of us connect a little bit to being that odd duck. Sure. One of the conversations I had with my brother later in life was he said, oh, I always knew. My, my little brother, we shared a room together until I was 16. And it's funny because I'm like, well, what did you know? Because if you always knew and you tell me you knew when you were you know, 9, 10, 11, I wasn't out at 13 and I wasn't sexually active at 13. So you knew something that was just off. Yeah. So it's interesting because I am so amazed by young people today who are already identifying a particular way. I think my generation, we didn't know what the hell it was. We knew we were different. But to your point, when I was 12, I knew I was different. The idea that I was homosexual didn't come into play. I'm just trying to figure out who I am and dealing with other life challenges that a 12-year-old should not have to deal with at that point. So my head wasn't in that space. Do, do you think that that's due to representation? Because, I mean, obviously that's the political thing happening now is let's try to reduce the impact. Let's get rid of these books. Let's get rid of these media representations or whatever. So how much does representation or role models or what we see in our world impact like would that have made a difference in you if suddenly you know let's say you 
knew a jazz singer or performer that was out and gay? Like, how might have that have impacted you? I think if that if, if those individuals were there and in, in, in my direct space, it, it would have impacted me. So the closest thing to that was actually a gay couple that my grandmother worked for. My grandmother was a, was a domestic. She worked for a, an attorney who worked for Henry S. Miller and his partner, who was an interior decorator, and they lived up in Bluffview beautiful home. During the summers, if I, there were times I'd have to go to work with my grandmother because she would, she could babysit us there if mom was working. They were what I would call quintessential queer because from hello, you knew that they were, they were gay. They were just very, very generous, very outgoing, extremely flamboyant. I remember that I'm a kid. I remember their dog's names were, they had two poodles, Pooh and Winky. (laughs) You just didn't get any gayer than that. So I, from a distance, would watch, and they weren't always home when, when my grandmother was working, but when they were, and you engaged with them, they were just amazingly generous. They had tons of books, so there were a lot of books that I would read sometime, but never anything, you know, that was, they kind of kept their distance because I think they were aware of the fact that, you know, there was this, and they didn't see it in me, which was interesting. So fast forward, and I was a young boy at that point. My grandmother, God lover, was so naive because they had a photo of the two of them on one of the nightstands in their bedroom, and they were in drag. And my grandmother would always say, I don't know who these two ugly women are <laughs> that, <laughs> that John and Doug know that are special to them, that they, they must be relatives that they keep them this picture on their nightstand. My mom would be in the background going, Oh, sweet Jesus. She has no idea that that's actually them. So when she found out, she was mortified. But she worked for them for almost 30 years. So they were kind of my unofficial mentors because they weren't around all the time, but you could go through the house and just see if you knew what to look for their relationship. It was, it just permeated in their home. Well, and I think, I think even back then, it's not like there were a lot of rep, you know, a lot of couples that were successful that were, you know, somewhat, I guess, open, yeah. you know, behind closed doors. But yeah, I mean, it's like, I, I don't even really know a lot of gay couples that I grew up with where I was able to look from afar. Mm-hmm. Um, and at least you see like a good representation of a fairly healthy, happy couple. Yeah. And I had, you know, so once I came out, which was shortly after the Titanic sank, it's been that many years ago now, <laughs> I did have role models, particularly when I got to high school. Had I stayed in Oak Cliff and gone to my home high school, which would have been, it would have been South, South Oak Cliff. Oak Cliff? Okay. And at that point in time, sock was rough. My middle school was rough. And I knew, as did my mom, that if I had just gone to my regular high school, it would have been worse than it was in middle school. So I had the, the grades and the, the proficiency on trumpet and French horn to, be, to, to audition at Arts Magnet and be accepted. And the first day I walked in, my sister came in as a, she left Roosevelt High School and transferred. So she came in in the dance department as a junior. I came in as a freshman. And the first day we walked in, you know, there was a guy in the theater department named Shannon Burke, white guy who was probably, got eight feet tall compared to me, with a yellow mohawk. And I'd never seen anything like that. I'm like, we are not in Oak Cliff anymore. <laughs> These people are just, but it changed both of our lives. So my sister was there, I was, my brother subsequently graduated from there. So now you have this culture in high school to where not only is it artistic, but they're, they're gays everywhere. But I didn't come out until after I finished high school. So I had a lot of friends in high school who were, especially if they were in the dance department because, or theater, because, you know, they're just creative and expressive. And I was, I was the nerd that played French one. So I'm just like watching all of this from the background going, yep, I'm not going to, I'm going to sit right here and just, you know. <laughs> My first crush was in high school. He played principal oboe in the wind ensemble in the orchestra. He is now the principal oboist with the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra. Good, great, great friend. His name is Roger but probably my first little high school crush. So I finished high school, I graduated in 1985. I went back in 86 when Roger came out and I was his prom date. And back then that was not heard, not done, not heard of. Right. But I remember we walking into the dance studio at our high school where the prom was being held and all of the, the, the parent chaperones and the faculty chaperones saw us walking together and it was just like, oh, it's Terry and Roger. It was like, it was no big deal. Now, had anyone external to that situation seen that? People with their Bibles marching in the street or around the school. But for us, it was no, it was just who we were. So it didn't mean that we weren't still talked about. There was no physical bullying in high school at all. Even the kids who 
were not like us, because it was an environment for the arts, it was it was tolerated. Faculty was even the same way. It was it was not like I, I never and there were people that were teaching there that you knew were not big on affirmative how much yes. Yeah. <laughs> but because of the the environment that they were in, they didn't wear that on their sleeves, which was very helpful if you're a kid, because you're still trying to get an education. And I'm still dealing with life challenges that have nothing to do so school was an outlet because of some of the stuff now eventually things got better at home we obviously came out of that situation you know mom did a great job she raised three kids and we eventually healed the relationship that was soured with our dad and that took a long time but we, we got there so coming out so i had some wonderful mentors that were adult gay men when i came out you know 18 was still the legal drinking age I decided because of some of the relationships that I already developed friendship-wise that were older than me and had not come out. So I knew guys that were in their 30s and 40s who had not come out. Now, different times, but I'm 18 and I'm like, that's, a, that's just ridiculous. You know, why wouldn't you, you know, what's the big deal? You're 40 years old. If you don't think they know by now, you know, so... I, I didn't think they knew for a long time. Well, and they do. My little bold ass, I was like, I am going to bite the bullet and I'm going to tell mom first and my siblings, and then I'll get to my minister dad later. That out of sight, out of mind, because he wasn't in the household. So for those of you that are listening and remember, are old enough to remember the original dynasty with <laughs> John Forsyth and Joan Collins. Joan Collins. Linda Evans. Linda she Evans. Was, there yeah. you go. I just remember the, the the wrestling match in the pool. Yes. So I know what yeah. you're talking about. But Dynasty had a gay character in it, which was Blake Carrington's son. So I am literally in my bedroom upstairs at home, you know, and I'm cool. So I'm, you know, I'm puffing on my little cigarettes and the window of my bedroom's open. And I'm working on this monologue in my head that I'm going to go down and tell mom. Finally work up the nerve, go downstairs and open her bedroom door. She's laying on kind of a, a chase lounge on one side of the room, TV's in front of her, and I'm behind her. And I'm like, I, I really need to talk to you and I talk to you right now. So from her vantage point with her back to me, her, her right arm goes into the air. And then without moving or saying a word, her forefinger points towards the TV and she goes, you see my show's on. There's nothing you need to tell me right now that you can't tell me in another 46 minutes and 13 seconds until this goes off. <laughs> so mortified, I go back upstairs. This was also before DVR, so there's no way to there's pause no, the show. No. You no. have to watch. You have to, yeah. You got your commercial breaks and that's it. So I go back upstairs, get my cigarettes out, and I'm, you know, puffing. And about an hour later, I hear her coming upstairs. She comes in my bedroom and I'm spraying air freshener in the room, throw my cigarette out the window. And she, so she kind of hide my cigarettes in the hiding spot. So she comes in, y'all, and she's you know in her robe and her slippers, and she takes her foot and she slides my nightstand away from the the wall, reaches down, picks up my pack of cigarettes, and lights one and sits on my bed and goes, "Now, baby, what did you want to talk about?" And I'm like, <laughs> "Oh my God, you know, you know." She goes, "You didn't think I didn't know." Right. So I go through this my my speech, you know, and she's sad and she dil she she didn't say a word. She just patiently listened to. What I had to say, I finished, and she said, her response was, your grandmother and I used to talk about this when you were about six or seven. It wasn't that you were gay. It was that you were different. We didn't know what that meant. She said, so from that day to this, she's, she's been nothing but supportive. I think she went through a period after I came out, and I think a lot of parents do this, of, you know, what did, what did I do wrong as a parent that resulted in my child being this way? Because it could have gone horribly wrong. It could have been, get out of my house, you're not my child, and that's happened to, we all know, numerous friends who have experienced that type of rejection from their families. And there was some of that, but it wasn't, in, in our family, it, it would have never gotten to the point of being thrown out. You were still shunned, especially in the church, but it wasn't like, I don't love you to, you know, this isn't a situation where I'm going to throw you out. My dad, on the other hand, I thought was going to be more understanding because some, from about the age of 12 or so, he would ask me if I was gay. And at that point, I still didn't know. I'm still mad at him because he left. So I'm like, let's just deal with that first before we talk about me. But because he'd always put it out there, I thought telling dad's going to be easy because he's, he's, it's already in his head. So my sister got to him with her big mouth before I could tell him. And then he 
called the house, finally caught me on the phone once, and was like, I hope you're happy with this decision that you've made, and how could you do this to to the family and to me? And, you know, it was this. So at that. The irony of that is, but look what you did to us. Yeah. So my younger brother, who was going through all of this, was just like, I don't really understand this. Maybe it's just a phase you're going through. My sister was, and my sister was always closer to my dad. So when this happened, she never stopped loving me at, I mean, ever, but it was, you're going to burn in hell. And I'm like, as long as the real estate's good, I'm okay. So that was 1985-ish. So fast forward to probably 2013, my mother and I are coming back from Houston from a family funeral. I'm driving and I just kind of look over and I'm like, when did you know that I was gay? And she said, your grandmother and I discussed this when you were about five. And she brought it up. She goes, because I, was, I had an idea that you might be. Your grandmother picked up on it and said, don't treat him any differently. You love him just as much as you do, but he's, he's, he's going to be different. And so that was followed by, because there was already you know, an, an uproar of, of discussions and dialogues around, even then, about same-sex marriage, even though it hadn't happened yet. And she said something. She goes, you know, if that should ever happen, I want you to know that I would be okay with that. And I'm like, good to know. She goes, now, you're not planning on doing that, are you? And I'm like, well, I hadn't thought about it. Why? She went, well, honey, I've seen them come and go, and I just assumed that you'd you'd get to a point to where you know better to leave well enough alone. I'm like, I'm sorry, what are you saying? And she goes, well, I'm just talking about your dating protocol. And I'm like, protocol? What does that mean? She went, you know, catch and release. And I almost ran off the road, y'all. I'm like, woman, did you just say what I, uh uh-huh, here today, gone tomorrow. And I'm like, wow. I thought catch and release was okay. (laughs) As did I. As did I. My mom's crazy. She's she's extremely supportive, very loving. She's been through so much to to get her kids up to where we are now. And she, you know, by car, she's probably six minutes from my front door. Actually, I'm going there when I leave here. So we're still very close. So it was... I would not wish some of the heartache and strife and struggle that we experienced when I was a kid as a family and as a as a young gay boy that that again it could have it would have been easy to settle or to because my first job was sacking groceries at a time thumb and I, I started that in high school and through community college it was one of my mentors who said you know you don't need to do that forever and I'm like but I could, if I keep doing this, I could have my own store one day. And he looked at me and said, but you could do so much more. You could, yeah, they love you. You're doing a great job. And yeah, you could be your own store director, but you're way too gifted and talented to stop there. And that was some of the best advice I had gotten. Well, I think that's a typical response a lot of times when we're feeling rejection from different places, whether it's socially or family or religion, we then kind of lean into this people-pleasing perfectionism. So we do see ourselves as, I'm, I'm just going to do the best job I can, and and we don't really tap into our own potential. There would have been nothing wrong had I done that, because I don't want to imply that having that type of career and job is is, is not a good thing. Sure. It's just that I think what they were seeing in me was something more than what I was doing. And so one of the things I used to, for a long time, go back to my middle school and, and speak to the student council there. Long, this, I hadn't done it in years. And one of the things I would tell them, because I could recognize kids that I would engage with who reminded me of myself at that age, and I would tell them, you need to keep in mind that this is a part of your journey that is not anywhere close to the end of it. So where you are now, you need to live through it, walk through it, but don't allow this to to be your, your ultimate future, because you don't know what's going to happen. You just don't. You know, I want to kind of turn back to the arts, and, sure. and when we were talking about your high school experience, the one thing that popped into my head was the importance of safe space. I know there's a lot of political debate about education and all of these things, but the way that you described it, you know, you even had teachers who may not have been affirming, but kept that to themselves because they wanted to create a safe space for students. You being able to express yourself, be yourself, you know, come to prom with another guy. That's exactly what safe space looks like. And 
the experience you had in middle school, you know, or even in elementary school was not that. There was no protection. There was that constant bullying. And so when we talk about safe spaces or when we talk about creating those environments for our teenagers, adolescents, our youth in America, that's exactly what we're talking about. I just find that fascinating when you describe that. So take us kind of from that point, because I loved what you said earlier about going to Booker T really saved your life. Translate that into your life in arts and how that began to shape and launch you. My goal when I started playing trumpet was, you know, to one day become the world's, my generation's Miles Davis. And it was very clear, very early on that if I were still a musician today playing horn, I'd be a great studio musician as a part reader, not as a soloist. That, that I didn't have the, that skill set. My brother does, who is a very accomplished jazz saxophonist in New York. But the, here's a great example. I hated math in school. But to be and play music, you, that's the core component of it. You have to, to read music is to use arithmetic. So I called it the tricky way of getting me to, to embrace <laughs> and, and pay more attention to my studies around math. But it was this freeing comfort zone that despite everything that may have been going on in my life as a kid, being able to go to band, go to my rehearsals, to my lessons was freeing to me. Especially, I talked about the hardships that we went through. My grandmother, I remember, and my mom saved, mom was saying parts of her checks. My grandmother literally did not pay her bills for two months to save two of her social security checks to buy me my first trumpet. So I had to fulfill on the promise that I was making to myself and hers. And I did that. I had a great, so here's the thing. Walking on into that campus in 1981, one of the courses they taught, because the Arts Magnet was started by Paul Baker, who used to be, you know, the godfather of the Dallas Theater Center. Dr. Baker created a, the, not only the program that, that is the Arts Magnet, he had a class called Integration of Abilities. So as a freshman, you had to take IA. So if you were a musician, you were then exposed in the IA to dance, visual arts, and theater and vice versa around the other clusters. So it was their way of immersing you not only in just your area of the arts, but all of them. That was a game changer because my focus was music. I didn't care about dance. I'm, I'm the, I, and I tell people, I'm the only black man in America with no rhythm. Don't, <laughs> don't get me anywhere close to a dance floor. It's not pretty. But be, to be able to teach this appreciation of all of the arts was a game changer. So those four years, for me, and I was just in New York last weekend, and I had drinks with a friend of mine I went to high school with, and we were talking about the fact two black gay boys from Oak Cliff who went, ended up on the same campus. He's a stylist in Manhattan. You know, I'm doing, you know, all of the crazy stuff that I do here. But we, our experiences were similar. And we both said the same thing over drinks this last weekend, which was that school saved our lives. And the arts have a way of doing that. So if you look at every... You take the last three years of the pandemic. You take the last three years of starting with George Floyd's murder and every other one similar to that that's happened since then, before then. There was this catalytic moment in 2020 that involved not only the, 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 the beginning stages of the pandemic, George's murder, this convergence of things that happened at the same time. You know, there was nothing new, sadly, about what happened to George Floyd. The difference was it went global in a way that other situations like that had not. It, it just literally horrified the world. And you're seeing it on television. You're seeing it in print. You add the pandemic on top of that. So, Well, people were at home and had a front row seat. Absolutely. Nothing else There's to do. nothing else to do. So then you have the, the arts. So what do you do when you're stuck at home? Working in the arts, as I do now, you saw a lot of arts institutions and artists immediately shift to how can we move forward safely because of what we're all living through right now to produce and cultivate art. So you saw companies producing dance recitals in parking garages or in fields and using drones to video these performances. The arts came alive in a way as, it, as they typically do in, in adverse times to continue to entertain, educate, and inspire. As a funder of the arts in my current position at TACA, 
that was very critical for us to maintain funding to these organizations so they could safely continue programming for the sanity, the emotional sanity of not only themselves as artists, but the community that they serve. It's interesting how creative, not just in the arts, but creative in general has, has been used to, to heal. And I think we're still doing that. And I think in our community, especially because of the diversity of the makeup of our community, I think that's even more so. I think we, through the adversity that we've all experienced and the understanding of that, there's a level of understanding and compassion that is there that allows us to look at these situations and go, this is not fun, it's not, and it, and it feels bad, and it, but we've been through these times before, so we just need to move forward. The attacks that are happening in our community right now to women, people of color, what looks like this attempt to push us back into the 50s or the 40s. We've been here before, so it's incumbent upon us to do what we've always done, which is to rise up and say, no, that's not going to happen. We're not going to allow it to happen. I would love to get to a space at my age and say, oh, my God, I can spend the rest of my, you know, like I'm ever going to retire. That'll never happen. But it would be great to say we've, we're done. That will never happen. It's incumbent on people like me and, and our, who, are, who are, you know, quote, unquote, I don't know how accurate the term is for me. Those of us who, are, who have a position of leadership in our community to instill those values and those initiatives and ideas into a younger generation to make sure that we are one being the mentors for the community, but not only within our community, but also allies. Because that's where the, that's where the difference is going to, you know, we know, the, we know the narrative. And we've known it for a long time. It's our job to not only continue that narrative to our demographic, but also outside of our demographic. That's where the needle is really going to start. And I would even say, you know, for my generation, there is this lack of history knowledge, you know, much like in all of our public education, there's just this lack of education on, you know, important topics, important people, important parts of our movement. And so I think it is, you know, really it's really necessary that we do have these mentorships, that we do have things like Black Tie and Taka that are helping to instill, you know, not only the education, but inspiration for the future. Because like you said, like, unfortunately, I don't even think in my lifetime will we ever just get to a point where I can say, you know what, we've, we, we won the fight and we're done. We can right. hang up our coats, right. you know, clearly by Roe v. Wade and things like that, the Don't Say Gay Bill um, in Florida. I mean, clearly the fight is not over. No, and these people are insane. I mean, it's just... <laughs> yeah. All right, we could, we could go on and on. Yeah, that, that's, that's <laughs> four other podcast sessions, yeah. yeah. Well, I think what's interesting is what I've seen in the arts time and time and time again is they tend to take up the mantle of social justice. Yeah. I know when I was in college and I did get a chance to sit down and interview Mamie Till Bradley, I remember asking her, you know, how do you move on after you've lost your son? And knowing that these men were never going to have any earthly retribution, how do you step forward? And she said to me, well, I created this little thing called the Emmett Till Players. And I took on a whole new generation of, of kids that I could teach and mentor and work with and then let them go out through the arts and tell that story and, and impact people. So to me, it's like that is the, the power of art. That I think, you know, a lot of times when people want to, you know, defund it or not support it, that's really what they're taking their money away from. Right. So I, I think of like Dallas and, and what I love about the Dallas art community is that they seem to be pushing the boundaries and things. You know, we, we had Lee Walter on in one of our earlier episodes. I and, I, that, and I yeah. know that, you know, she was talking about her performance in Little Shop and how big of a deal that was to have a transgender woman take on a lead traditionally female role and that's Dallas. So, you know, you're working in this community, you're working with Taka and you can talk to us a little bit about that work as well. Why stay in Dallas? I know you're from here. Mm -hmm. And, and I think one of the things I've seen in the arts, people always say, well, nobody stays in Dallas. Right. They go to New York, they go to LA. That's right. where, all, you know, we have a, a, a budding talent that comes up here and then boom, they're and gone. And then they're gone. Yeah. So, why did you, I mean, I know you've done some work on Broadway. I know you've done some production work, but for you personally, what is the power of that Dallas art community? Why have you continued to come back to it and give back to I it? I tried not to come back. Um, <laughs> <laughs> 
So I spent, as you know, Brian, the bulk of my career in in, uh, marketing communications and PR, literally for almost 27 years. And got to a point to where that was just not exciting anymore. You do something for so long, it's like, and I don't have the personality or the the spirit within me that says, I'm going to do this until I die. It's boring to me. So I think that's why I've tried all of these other things. So I've had, if, if someone were to chronologically look at everything I've done in my life, they go, you're insane. You know, why, you know, why not stick to, you know, one or two things and just do that? Because I get bored. I'm a Taurus. You know, my attention span is like, no. And especially if it's not engaging or exciting, I'm out of there. I was in New York working for a hedge fund that exclusively raises money to produce Broadway shows and to fund touring companies and things of that nature. And loved it. So I left advertising altogether in 2018, went to New York to work for this hedge fund and was having a blast. I just traveled the country raising money for the fund. So the the, the concept is it's very, anyone who's ever invested in, in a Broadway show knows it's a very risky in, in endeavor because there's no magic bullet that says this show is going to make all of your money back. And the Hamiltons of the world only come around every you know, 10, 15, 20 years to where a show like that is going to win best everything from best dog catcher to best musical. <laughs> As opposed to Spider-Man After Dark. Spider-Man, hey. Spider-Man or, or the Broadway musical rendition of Dr. Zhivago, which was a hell that I cannot describe. Um, I, we did not find that one. No, no. I actually tried to sit through it and I made it to, you know, the movie had intermissions in it and the musical did too. But I was having a blast doing this job. I traveled the country, getting investors into the fund. And the cool thing about it was your money was going into a collective of shows as opposed to one. So if a show failed, it mitigated the risk that you were going to lose all of your money. So it's a brilliant concept. I was you know, having a great time doing that and then got re- uh, was reached out to by my dear friend, Valletta Forsyth-Lil, who said, we've given your name to a search firm here in Dallas because there's an opportunity we think you should consider and come back and take a look at the search firm reached out. They told me it was Taka. I just kind of giggled. And they said, you know, there's 115 people that have put their, their names in the hat. And I'm like, perfect. There's at least some one in there that you can go hire. I am not leaving New York to come back and run a nonprofit in Dallas. And, and can you, just for our listeners who don't know, can you explain what Taka is? Taka stands for the Arts Community Alliance. It is Dallas's oldest non-foundation arts funder. So we much like Black Tie or the United Way, I, uh, the best analogy I can have for talk is that we are the United Way for the arts. So much like Black Tie raises money and then distributes it to LGBT-focused organizations in our community, TACA raises money through a grants protocol, application-based, and we fund the cultural arts in Dallas County. So small, medium, large-sized budget. So we, in, in our community, for example, Turtle Creek Corral is a grantee of TACA. Uptown Players is a grantee of TACA. Theater 3, we not only do the arts, we do dance, music, visual art, theater. We, literary arts, we added a year or so ago, and photography. It was not anywhere on my radar to, to run an arts nonprofit or to work for a nonprofit after being on the for-profit side of my career for so many years. Which is, you know, and, and the running joke is you don't go into nonprofit to make a lot of money. But I have to say, and I won't go, we don't have enough time to go through the, the table tennis sessions of me ending up at Taka after trying to say no numerous times. There was a moment when I left my house in Winnetka Heights in Northfield Cliff and I'm driving to the office and I'm like, someone's paying me to raise money to support an industry that I, lo- that I grew up in and I love. And I get to office in a, in, in a lo- geographic location to where I get to see the building where it all started, which is my high school, because I'm at One Arts Plaza. So I knew they had me when they did the last series of interviews at the Thompson & Knight legal firm that was in that building in a conference room, blinds pulled up, overlooking the entirety of the arts district, but specifically my high school, because it's right there. And I'm like, damn it, they've done it to me. Because if I do this, I get, I come back home to where it started. So then you look at your career and go, is this, you have this unique opportunity to take a organization that from a financial perspective was not doing great and not only right the ship financially, but also make it relevant in ways that it had never been in its 50 year history. So as opposed to just writing those checks, my goal was to make talk relevant to where 
the money that our donors were giving us to support these organizations, one, it was important to me to show the donors the full impact of those dollars and where they were going. So it's beyond your support of the Dallas Symphony. It is beyond your support of the Dallas Opera. I started initiatives to where the donors could see where their money's going to help like Soul Rep Theater Company or Uptown Players or the Corral. There's this diverse fabric of arts organizations in this city that no one's ever heard of. So I get to get up every day and highlight these organizations and the artists who, who, who work in these areas in ways that the city, my partners, for example, at the City of Dallas Office of Arts and Culture can't because it's a, govern, it's, a, it's a government entity. It also gives me a bully pulpit to where I can say things from an arts advocacy perspective that my grantees or a government entity cannot. So no one's going to come and beat me up because I say the city of Dallas needs to spend more money in the arts or the state of Texas needs to spend more money in the arts or, you know, the philanthropic community in Dallas needs to. That said, Dallas is one of the most generous philanthropic communities to the arts. I would even say more so than Manhattan. The, the amount of money that comes into the arts in this city is staggering. My job is to make sure it's, it's being done equitably. So I tell people an investment in TACA is the best investment you can make in the arts, and I'm stealing this from a board member, but the best investment you can make in the arts because we do so much, which is interesting because as senior co-chair for Black Tie, we do the same thing. It's just in two different areas. So it's, it's ironic to me that I now work in a, for an arts organization that gives away money, and then I work for an LGBTQ-focused nonprofit that gives money away to the community. So I get paid for one, and I don't get paid for the other. But I'm sure the workload is... Tremendous. On, oh, my God. <laughs> well, and, and you said, you know, Dallas is one of the most charitable cities when it comes to especially the arts. Why, why is that? It's interesting. And, and Brian, you brought this up. So it's, it's interesting that that level of support is here financially to support the arts. And we have the challenge of great talent leaving the city. And, and there's the rub is that in between spot. It's not that the philanthropic community is not supportive. They are. To, to coin a phrase my dad used to use in church, it's time for us to stop tipping the arts and start tithing. And what I mean by that is it's great to write these large checks to support institutions, but we need to drill down deeper to see how that financial support impacts the artists who make up the dynamic programming that these institutions are able to put on. So the fact that Jonathan Norton, for example, at Dallas Theater Center, great black Incredible. playwright. Incredible. Um, I've sat in classes with him, and it's he's, like I... Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. We should have 12 other playwrights, 20 others, that are living here and not making, I want to be very clear when I say this, not making a livable income, but to make a demonstrative living to where it is supporting every fabric of their being. I've been very blessed over the course of my career because I've been an entrepreneur most of my career, so I've been responsible for my own income. If you're an artist, especially in this city, that can be an uphill struggle because the money to support the arts is here, but how does that equate to an artist being able to pay their rent, buy a house, start a family? It's a challenge. Now that we, we have the arts district, a lot of the institutions in the arts district are now starting to look at how they can take the arts out of the geographical area of the arts district and truly immerse what they do into the community. There are EDI initiatives that they're all now embracing because it has gone beyond optics, which I think a lot of them for a long time were doing. It happened in our community. I can't tell you how many times as being a black gay man in Dallas, I've been contacted about being on a board because they have a box they need to check. And I'm very clear and very quick to recognize that and go, no, you know, that's not me. But all of that is beginning to shift. So this whole woke movement is, is penetrating every fabric of our society, the arts, the LGBTQIA community, because I'll tell you, when I came out, I was re referencing this earlier, there weren't a lot of people of color walking up and down Cedar Springs in the late 80s. And you weren't always welcome. The arts was that haven and safe space for me. It wasn't even in my own community because I was still shunned because I was a black gay man. You know, this whole cabin used to get in trouble years ago for, you know, trying to require three picture IDs to go into their clubs and women couldn't wear open-toed shoes. 
Oh, I'm not kidding. It was ridiculous. So to, to go through all of this in this city and to recognize the shifts and the changes that have taken place and to recognize those that still need to take place. So when it comes to the artists, again, who support the, who work in these institutions, it is incumbent on supporters, I don't care at what level, if you can afford to give an arts organization $25 a month or 50000 it is incumbent on those of us who help fund these institutions to say, how are we doing this from the artist perspective to where we retain the outstanding talent that's in this city? How do we make Dallas a cultural haven like you would see at Lincoln Center, you would see at any other major market? And that's the goal. If I died tomorrow and said I, I had, was able to help move that needle in some way, I would I would die happy. Let's let's pivot a little bit to black tie because sure. you've mentioned that a couple of times, and I want to make sure we have time to to get into that because black tie is very similar to what you you've done in the arts. Sure. Number one, how do you get involved with that? I mean, I've known you in that organization for years, mm-hmm. and and what we've we've teased it. We've talked to other people who've been on here who've been parts of black tie, even all the way back to William Wayborn. Yeah. So why is this organization important? What does it actually do? And I'm going to throw a little bit of a controversial thing you can think of. I think in our community, some people see it as an elitist organization or it's very expensive to go to. And, and so they go, well, are they really impacting our community? I've seen the impact of what you've done. I'm right. playing devil's advocate on that. I don't want to get in trouble for saying that. <laughs> but I, I just think it's something that has had so much impact and influence in the Dallas community. So... Just, I want to give you the floor to just kind of go all out black tie here, mm-hmm. not as a commercial, sure. but what do you see it meaning in our community? First of all, let me say that I used to be one of those people that looked at, I attended black tie for years, but not knowing the inner workings of the organization, that that is not a, it's an unfair assessment, but it's one that is understandable. Black tie started in 1982 as just a dinner party in, in a home. And has mushroomed in, you know, 41 years later into what we are today, which is probably the largest LGBTQIA gala dinner of its kind that is not produced by HRC. So the only thing equivalent to us in size and scope is the HRC National Dinner in D.C. I have friends who have been on that board for years. I have been approached to be on the board for years. And it wasn't the fact that I said, I didn't say no because I thought it was this elitist group for a bunch of white gay and lesbians to to run an organization, it was, it's a lot of time. And I knew that based on friends who were on the board. I called it a cult then, I still call it a cult (laughs) in a very loving way. Because our board averages 20, 25, and times probably up to 30 people. It is an all-volunteer board. If you have been to Black Tie and walked into that ballroom at the Sheridan to where there's on average pre-pandemic, you know, 2,600 to 3,000 people, that takes a year to do, and, it, and it's done by an all-volunteer board. The strategy that it takes to recruit and put the right people in these positions to make that night happen is, it, it, you can't describe it. While we hear these criticisms, our goal is to educate, empower, and entertain, and we do that using this, this thing we call Black Tie Dinner, and raise a lot of money for local beneficiaries, which we we fund up to 20 a year. Sometimes it's 16. It depends on the application. And again, it's an application process. So let me start there. Any 501c3 that provides some sort, either all services or a portion of services to our community can apply for funding for black tie. We vet those applications on a scoring system and that determines who gets in and in what quantity. Then through our internal protocol and then working with sponsors and table captains at the dinner, there are designations that attendees of black tie can make towards a particular beneficiary of their choice. We raised, last year was a record year for us. We raised a million four hundred and fifty thousand dollars Which is great coming off the pandemic. I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, happy 40th black tie, yeah. Based on those percentages and the applications and the scores, We'd identify how many bennies we're going to support, and then based on another matrix of support from the community designating their favorite beneficiaries, determines at what what amount they get. So we won't know that, for example, until we're on the other side of the dinner in September. 
Then HRC's Educational Foundation gets, a, a, they're our national beneficiary and they get a big check from us. So a lot of people often get confused because HRC's brand is affiliated with Black Tie that this is an HRC event. It is not. Black Tie is its own 501c3. HRC is a beneficiary of Black Tie, not the other way around. Now, that said, we do have a partnership with them. They help us recruit and find talent and speakers for the dinner. They provide auction items for us to put in our Lux and silent auctions. So they, they have been a true partner over the years and it's been a great relationship. But the goal, our goal is to raise as much money as we can to push back out into our community. So the criticisms we get is that you know, you're an elitist organization, which makes me giggle because I was at dinner one night and got an earful from uh, an attendee of Black Tie who just walked up and started talking to me unsolicited. And it's like, you know, for example, when are they going to have black people on the board? And I'm like, well, I don't know. That's a good question. Let me look <laughs> in the mirror and see. And and some of that is fair. You know, I'm the first person of color to be co-chair of Black Tie. That's not true. Let me, I'm, let me retract that. I am the second. So there was, in my rookie class in 2017, one of my great friends, her name is Idalisa Benjamin, who was came in on my rookie class and was co-chair for a minute, but then due to work and health issues, she had to step down. So she didn't finish her term. So I'm the first person of color to finish out my, my term as junior co-chair and senior co-chair. But my first four years were program chair. So everything you see that happens in the ballroom is the responsibility of the program chair from, from table linens to who's on the stage. And I was given that job because the board at the time thought, you know, he's produced on Broadway, he can be program chair. Those are two separate <laughs> things. Completely different. Completely different things. I, I got thrown into this reluctantly, <laughs> but I have to say I loved it because to walk into an empty ballroom when we do load in and then open those ballroom doors the night of the dinner is magical. And it is. It's a stunning moment if you've never been. Our goal this year, like it is every year, is to raise as much money as we can. But I will say that events like Black Tie, like DIFA, others like it around the country, are challenged moving forward from not necessarily from a relevance pers relevancy perspective because we do a lot of good. So one of the key initiatives that was important to me coming into this year as senior co-chair was... How do we do more in the community as a board to support our, our beneficiaries, but also to support our sponsors? So typically our engagement with sponsors is you were with us, if it's a returning sponsor, we need you back. If it's a new sponsor, who we are, what we do, why we do it, what our impact is. But until recently, we've never like gone to American Airlines because they support us and say, what LGBTQ initiatives are you moving forward with as a company through your ERG groups and how can our how can we bring our board out to support those initiatives? And we've been doing a lot of that this year. A lot of that with our beneficiaries showing up and trying to help our us volunteering for their initiatives to say what can we do to make our impact even more felt even more other than writing those checks. So it's incumbent upon us to make sure that we're being relevant and responsive and in tune with what's going on in our community by actually being in the community. So that's been that's been a great thing. And Gina and and Dustin Byers, who is the incoming co-chair for next year, are going to take that and run with it even more. That said, these big gala things are, are a nightmare to put together. They're fun. They're rewarding. The, the show factor is there. And because of my work on Broadway, I think my first year as program chair, I hired, they let me hire a music director from New York. I put an orchestra together. We did an all-male review of Cell Block Tango from Chicago, <laughs> which was fun, because I want people to be not only educated, but it's part of our mission, also entertained. So you're, you're stuck in a ballroom for three hours. You really want to make sure that people are engaged in what you're doing, but not to ignore or forget why we're there. The challenge with these types of organizations is this. Funding sources are becoming more available from different areas. So you have a lot of local, regional, and national foundations that are now supporting our initiatives. The lift in some situations is easier. It's sometimes easier to go to a foundation and simply submit an application for funding without having to jump through certain hoops to get that money. So one of the things that we have to look at strategically as an organization moving forward is how do we make that process simpler and how do we raise more money to where it's worth an organization's time, effort, and energy to go through this process. 
And we don't have a silver bullet for that yet. It's something we're looking at. We'll be looking at a lot in our next retreat in January. You know, DIFA is probably facing some of the same challenges in any HRCs. I mean, they do these, these dinners and various markets all over this country. We're all in that same bucket of how do we maintain the impact that we, we support our community, but doing it in a way to that where that lift is not a burden on the organizations that we support. Well, one of the things I want to say, and, and, and because I want people to hear who haven't been to Black Tie Dinner, a couple of months back when we did a lot of our pride shows, mm-hmm. one of the things, the recurring themes that kept popping up was this idea of walking into a room and, you know, like when you go to pride, you especially when you're a young person, it's your first pride. It's like, oh, I didn't know there were so many of us. I didn't know that people thought like me because I grew up in my situation, probably similar to you in Oak Cliff, where you feel like I'm the only one. For me, like I've been, you know, involved with black tie for many years. And I remember the first time walking in and, and looking around the room and having that same feeling of I am at an event where the majority of the people here are like me. And, oh, look, this guy's the CEO of this company or this person is involved in this industry. And I didn't know that they existed. But to be able to go, here's people that are thriving, who are succeeding, who are in industry. To me, as a volunteer that very first year, that was overwhelming to go, I'm okay. Yeah. I feel like I belong to something that's that's giving back to our community. That The level of success and the people that I see, people like you, gave me hope. Mm really encouraged me to continue the different things that I've done. Even the, the launch of this podcast and, and being able to connect to people, a lot of it comes from those moments. Yeah. So I, I think we'd be remiss to, to miss the impact of that. Yes, I know the dinner ticket is expensive. And every year I'm always like, do I, do I not? Is this the year I need to sit out? Yeah. But but I, I think the value of those moments is worth more than the price of that ticket. Yeah, and it's the, it, it's an ongoing challenge because it costs a lot of money to put that dinner on. The ticket price has to reflect not only you know our operating expenses to do it, but also the money that we give to the communities. It is, in, in, and again, we're not the only organization and event of this scale that has this challenge, which is when I started going to Black Tie as a patron, I think the ticket was 150 bucks. I, that, I would like that discounted. Price. Yeah, that's been yeah, and that, that's been a long time ago when it was at the Anatole and like part of a ballroom. That's one of the criticisms that we and other organizations like ours get a lot is the cost of entry. So how do you and and the other challenge that organizations like us have is engaging a younger LGBTQIA demographic. That $400 ticket is impossible. So one of the things that we're looking at is how do we address that to make it accessible? You know, do we live stream it once we start the program to where you can just engage us with us that way? Do we do smaller ballrooms in the hotel and stadium seating style to where for a reduced ticket price, you're still experiencing it. You're just not in the main ballroom. The challenge with that is real estate. As wonderful as Dallas is, the Sheridan Ballroom and the ballrooms at the Anatole are the the only two within the city that don't require you to drive to like that thing out in Grapevine that's humongous. That's one of the things you have to look at. And so the convention center comes up from time to time. And you could put a lot more people in there. You could probably do some sort of ticketing price that is more affordable so that we can engage our community that we want to replace us at some point and be those mentors, but say, Here, here's the exposure. Here's the access. I, I want to make this distinction because we're, there's a lot corporately, religiously, nonprofit, this whole movement of EDI. The, the one word that's missing from a part of that that is important to me is access. So when I look at the arts funding I do, it's important to me as the head of TACA to make sure that artists and arts organizations have access to funding in ways that they had never had before. It's important to me that the, the younger generation and our community have access. So how do we do that? Well, I think those are the same challenges we see in mental health. I, I want to create access, but I also want to eat. Yeah. Sure. You know, I've also got to make a living doing what I do. And so it's like, I would love to pro bono every client that walks right. through the door because I know they need that access. They need it, yeah. But at the same time, we're also in a society where I have to make a living in the process. And so I access comes up a lot, yeah. you know, and we're, we're looking yeah. at things to, of how to change that. And when you look at our trans community, when you look at the people of color in our community, I think it's unfair to make an assumption that because 
people look a certain way or are a certain way that they can't. And this happened in the this has happened in the black community, especially in the arts, for decades. Yeah. To where development teams within arts organizations put a very small focus on donors of color because the assumption is they don't have the money to do it, which is insane and a a huge missed opportunity. Same thing in our community. So we have to be very careful to say just because we have reached a certain point in our careers and our income levels and all of that, that because we don't have this type of job or do these things, that that's not there. That's not the case. And it's it's not in our best interest in our community to, to make these assumptions about ourselves and our brothers and sisters. So it's important to me as still being, for as, for as long as I'm around, being this quote-unquote leader in our community, access is important to me. So even when I roll off the black tie board, which is going to be very soon, my role with the organization, on our, if, if they approve me to go to our advisory board, is this whole issue of how do we, how, how can I use my intellect and skill set for black tie's future? to where that accessibility is there. We maintain a culture of inclusive inclusiveness to where that board is reflective of the entire community. And we've made huge strides there. You know, there's probably more diversity on our board today than there's ever been in, in its 41 year history. How do we maintain that? How do we maintain it in our committees that are the recruiting mechanisms that we put that we nominate people to the board. So looking at it from that lens so that our perspective is not skewed. We're not looking at it going, we'd, I'll, I'll, I, I hope the board didn't hit me over the head for this, but we do these surveys after each black tie. And we hear a lot of stuff. Oh, my God, it was amazing. Or, oh, my, oh my God, people need to not talk. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or it's too loud. I couldn't hear. The food was cold. Why do you serve fish? The ballroom reeks. So there's a whole plethora of comments that we get. But... The year that we featured Billy Porter, we got a, not a lot, but there were a handful of surveys that came in that were like, literally, y'all did a great job. Program was kind of brown this year. You read that and and these are anonymous comments. Is there any way we can find out who this, you know what is, so I can go to their house? If you look at what we've done in these last, you know, say 2015 till now, just with the programming of Black Tie which has gone from admittedly a predominantly white program to where we are now, to where we have a Shia Diamond on the stage. We have a Billy Porter on the stage. We have a Mickey Guinan. We've been a trendsetter as well. I mean, you know, Ava Max, Mickey Guyton, who is this gorgeous African-American country Western singer. We've been a catalyst in the community. I think that impact is even more great now because we finally embrace the diversity of our community locally and beyond to say we the board our our volunteers our committees and the program need to reflect the diversity of our community and it's more than optics i think that's important i mean i even think back of like kim petras performing at black tie mm-hmm. and just representation in the trans community and i i think that kind of brings us to this year's program i mean even looking at what's been announced so far with coleman domingo right. And then also Ryan O'Connell. It was very gratifying for me as a as, as a black gay man to see the changes we've made to our programming to where it's reflective to where anyone else that's a young Terry Loftus sitting in that room if they if they can come to the dinner can look up and go, but how cool is it to walk in there and see Billy Porter? So to have those voices penetrating that audience and this community is, is very important. So if you look at Domingo this year, you look at Ryan, there's a method to our madness. We, we are trying to, again, highlight and shine a light on every aspect of our community because until Ryan's show came out on Netflix, when was that, two, two years ago or so? I believe so, yeah. Um, and I watched the first episode and I was hooked. I'm like, I never even considered what it would be like to be a gay man who is in any form of uh, any form of a disability and our culture to where it's all about body, 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 yeah. you know, and, and, and just to reference that show, Ron O'Connell came out with the show special. Yes. And mm-hmm. it was created in 2019. Terry, thank you so much for being on our thank show you today. Having. I'm fascinated. I know we can go on and on and on. I do want to ask this because we know that the dinner is this Next. September 24th. Just tell us what can we, or what can you tell us that we can expect at the dinner that maybe hasn't been revealed or, or what are you most excited about going in? 
I can't reveal anything programmatically as yet, other than what we already know. I can say it's going to be, you know, coming off of our 40th, it's always a challenge to come off of a pivotal uh, a milestone year like that. So our goal programmatically, I mean, we've kind of hit on this with Domingo and Ryan, is for the program to be reflective. So one of the things that I think it's important to let people know is it is not our goal every year to find the the baddest, most influential celebrity that we can put on that stage. It has to be relevant and it has to be meaningful. So no big secrets I can let out of the bag on that. All information is on our website, which is blacktie.org. We will need things right up until the dinner. So, you know, if you're interested and you have the means to buy a raffle ticket, they're a hundred bucks, you can go do that. We still take auction items for the silent auction, text to give. So there's that that push at this point to, to bring in as much money as we can so that we can distribute more. But one of the things that I would just encourage anyone who's interested is, is if you're interested in volunteering or finding out all of the nuances and the painstakingly hard work that we do, reach out to us. And we're happy to invite people in to see what we do, That are, whether you want to be on a committee and there are several, or you just want to find out who we are and what we do. So we, as co-chairs, we do a lot of that. We do a lot of lunches and a lot of coffees to where, whether it's a donor or whether it's just someone who goes, hey, I'm interested in getting involved, you know, why do y'all do this? Or, and it's usually more personal. It's like, you know, why does Gina do this? Why does Terry Loftus do what he does? And, you know, are you people crazy for dedicating that much time on top of everything you do in your lives and trying to maintain relationships and family? So it's it's truly, the word that comes to mind is service. And that's, is, is everything that I've done on Broadway to marketing to to the arts, everything that I've tried to do, whether people believe me or not, is, and that was instilled in me based on the hardship that I talked about earlier in the podcast. If I'm not being of service, I'm doing something wrong. Well, thank you for your service. Thank you you for all you've done for our community. It's always a pleasure to hang out, to talk. I'm glad we got this format because I don't know that I've ever had a chance to sit down and talk to you for an hour. (laughs) I know. (laughs) At one one time, you know, because everything's happening. We're all going different places, but we really appreciate you. Thanks for having me. This has been fun. Thank you so much. Wow, what a great episode. Terry definitely answered a lot of my questions that I had about black tie. Growing up in the arts community here in Dallas, I love what he's saying about access because I think that's a really big part of the next movement of the art community here in Dallas especially is providing access to people that don't have access to this wonderful, amazing, thriving art community that I grew up in. I just love the work that he's doing, and it's really nice to be able to have a moment to sit down with Terry. I think we're always crossing and passing. We're always busy. I'm doing my thing. He's doing his thing, but I've always admired him for years, and it's just really nice to just take a moment to sit down and hear his story. There's a lot of things about his growing up here in Dallas that I wasn't aware, and I love what he talked about as far as how Going to Booker T and the art saved his life. It is so important in educational circles that we are looking at ways to engage our students and create safe spaces and and make sure that they're valued as opposed to just following the zeitgeist of political culture all of the time. It is important. It is life-saving for us to provide that support and those spaces for all of the kids throughout the United States. I think you're absolutely right. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Falling Out. We hope that you've enjoyed this. We hope you get a chance to go out to Black Tie Dinner on September the 24th. It's going to be a fabulous time. If you can't go to the dinner, find ways to give to the organizations that are supporting our community here in Dallas. Remember, you can't stay in the closet when the floor gives way. This is Falling Out. (laughs) 